Hello and welcome to the concluding reel of episode 5 of the Double Reel Film Podcast. I hope you've enjoyed the various features we've provided so far in our monthly podcast magazine for the discerning film nerd. By way of a recap, in the first reel of this month's episode, we had a roundup of a month in the life of a busy film nerd, including a trip to see Christopher Nolan's new film Tenet at the IMAX, a look at the classic but very controversial 1996 film Crash by David Cronenberg, and the first part of this month's special guest conversation with the Adamsons looking at Spike Lee versus Quentin Tarantino and diversity in Hollywood. Coming up now in the second reel, the concluding part of the Adamsons discussing diversity in film in the wider world, then the hidden gem looking at Catherine Bigelow's underrated classic Strange Days, the one that got away looking at Kurosawa's unrealised passion project The Mask of the Black Death, and the remake Hate Watch featuring infamous and disastrous 1996 version of The Island of Dr Moreau. But first, let's take you back to the special guest conversation. So we've we've talked about some you know some issues of race that have come up in other things like Tarantino and Spike Lee and you know for example even something as progressive and and and, and admirable as, as Hamilton perhaps not being perfect because you know it's it's impossible to be perfect people have got to decide to you know do their best in that situation um, but in terms of diversity in film uh, as we as we discussed previously the diversity in film is often reflected by what happens at awards time because if lots of people of all backgrounds are making films you would hope that lots of people of all backgrounds would then be honored for their filmmaking and, and be as prominent as other people in the industry and uh, there have been discussions over the past couple of years that suggest maybe even though people are probably doing their best to remedy that that it's still not quite there yeah um yeah, I agree in the past couple of years they've tried to fix it, but I've got some numbers here relating to particularly African-American representation at the Oscars. So yeah. since the inaugural Oscars, around 3,000 awards have been handed out. So that's 93-odd ceremonies, and then the amount of awards it's handed out, it totals up to 3,000. Now, out of those 3,000, 43 recipients of those Academy Awards have been black. Yeah. So I've calculated that that's 1.4% of all the awards ever. Mm-hmm. Yet 12.7% of the American population is African American. Yeah. So there's obviously a gross misrepresentation in Hollywood there. Um, you know, the, the, I mean, the Oscars themselves have a bit of a stained, you know, a stained history when it comes to racism. I, I cannot help but think of Hattie McDaniel's award, which she won for Best Supporting Actress in 1939 for playing the maid, um, Mammy, in Gone with the Wind, which is a film that really romanticizes the slaveholding Deep South. But she was forced to sit at a separate table to her white co-stars, who then proceeded to fuck off to a whites-only club after the ceremony. And furthermore, the film's producer, David Selznick, omitted all black faces from the poster for the film any, being any, anywhere the film's being shown in the South. And the black, yeah. cast were ban- the black cast were banned from going to the premiere. So while I'm not trying to say Hollywood's like that in, obviously, today's society, it's to give a bit of context of how far black people in Hollywood have come, but how there's still a ways to go. Yeah. I mean, that Hattie McDaniel thing, I mean, it, it, it's shocking. And it, it, it's, it's a reflection of the time in many ways. Uh, it's, it's not about film, but I think it's an, it's an interesting anecdote that, you remember the Jesse Owens, well, you don't remember, but you've heard about Jesse Owens and his achievements yeah, yeah. at the 1936 Olympics, which was meant to be a showcase for the brilliance of the Aryan people. And Jesse Owens stuck it right, right up Hitler by winning four gold medals. And clearly yeah. that was an embarrassment and people look back on it as a great milestone. And, and for black people to have a hero like that to, to do what he did in a stadium like Berlin 
he is a hero. He is someone that we should look up to and say, you know, well done, Mr. Owens. Um, but what's interesting about America at the time is for all, you know, Hitler is, you know, unanimously understood to be not someone uh, that <laughs> comes out of history very well for his, his yeah. racial thinking. He, um, he, he allowed a banquet in honor of the, in honor of Jesse Owens and other medal winners to go ahead with Jesse Owens as one of the guests of honor. Um, which yeah. is more than Jesse Owens got when he got back to America. And the moral yeah. of this, the moral of this story is not that Hitler wasn't as bad as we think. The moral of this story was um, the way black people were treated in um, in America was was almost was almost worse than Hitler in the 1930s. If people are going to remember the history, you know why black people might point to a history of not being treated particularly well in America. There was some significant incident incidents like that, which. Um, which is probably why it's still a big subject for them. Yeah, well, it's obviously still a big subject in 2020. Um, and I think we're going to touch on a little bit more of outside of film in a little bit. But obviously to keep it pertaining to film right now, um, after Hattie McDaniel won in 1939, I say won in quotation marks because she was treated like, you know, a piece of dirt. Um, a black person didn't win an Oscar until 1963, uh, which was Sidney Poitier for Lilies in the Field. Yep. And a black actress didn't win an Oscar for 50 years, which is Whippy Goldberg for Ghost, which she shouldn't have won for, she should have won for the colour purple. Yeah. But anyway. Um, and and she would have been the first woman to win Best Actress, uh, first uh, you know African-American woman to win Best Actress Oscar. Uh, in the end, the first and, in fact, only woman to win Best Actress is Halle Berry in 2001. So in almost 100 years, black people's or black women's you know contributions to film have not perhaps been fully reflected reflected at awards time. Yeah, I mean, Halle Berry should not be the only um, person of colour to have won uh, an Oscar for Best Actress. Yeah, yeah. Um, that, that's a bit of a disgrace. Um, yeah, there's obviously a clear, there's a clear lack of representation because proportionately you would say that there's maybe more black actors and actresses than there are you know, 12% of the population, I'd say there's a little bit more than that in Hollywood. But I don't feel they're fairly represented. They're not, they're not recognized for their work. Um, mm. Well, they don't, get, they don't get as many opportunities, I would say. You know, they're, they're, in, they're in the industry, but I, I don't have the data in front of me, but they are not getting the biggest jobs. They're not being considered for the, um, you know, directors are not necessarily getting the, the biggest directing jobs and the biggest stars in Hollywood are, you know, if any black person shows up on the list of highest paid actors in Hollywood, it's they are they probably had to work twice as hard to get there than their white counterparts, and it, and they won't be top. A, lo a lot of people of color and women and, and any minority that that is trying to kind of you know achieve equality, they've also got bills to pay. You know, they've got to go and visit their grandmother this weekend. They've got to go to the shops. They've got a whole life to lead, and they've got this whole other fucking thing to to deal with. Um, and they, yeah. st they say it's very tiring and it, and you know, what, what they're actually looking forward to is to, is to say, uh, all, all I really need to do to get ahead in life is just really, really work hard and do my best and hopefully get lucky. Like, like everybody else, the trick is how do you get from where we currently are to that position? Do you know what I mean? Because there's well, a lot of things that people can do about it that you, that they then get accused of, oh, you're being politically correct or you're kind of, um, you know, that's, that's as bad as the discrimination that you're complaining about. Cause you know, that, then you you know or you you run the risk of people being accused of only getting the job because they were black or a woman and it's like well if we all agree that things aren't quite right as they are 
and we want to get to a position where everyone's you know got an equal shot ha, ha, what changes should we make that are fair and reasonable to, to get there if i mean it's probably on the powers of us but the suggestion would be you know just give more exposure i think we touched on it um a little bit earlier but it's just giving the exposure to the people that are right for the job i don't i i somewhat disagree with the idea of quotas because it's almost like oh we've just given it to a black person we've just given the role to a white person it's like if the person's right for the role then the person's right for the role and it's making sure that everyone gets a fair crack of the whip and if they don't work they don't work and you know i'm confident in the majority of directors in hollywood who are quite open-minded people yeah maybe not all of them because I, I don't want to put you know tar everyone with the same brush but you know i would trust a christopher nolan to cast to to you know audition or offer the role to people of many ethnicities and then decide look this person works better for my role you're still good that doesn't make you a bad actor and I, I wish you every success and I've got the same confidence in someone like Anthony and Joe Russo it's yeah, I don't necessarily know how to tackle this problem but it's all about exposure and making sure the right person's like we touched on it um, briefly um, about making sure that you know you know, I don't like the idea of making James Bond female but I'd happily go and see an excellent spy film with an excellent female lead Yes. Um, I don't have any problem with that. It's just I think it's it's all about. It's probably like the the studios at Hollywood. I th- yeah, you've already mentioned this. That they're they're worried that yeah. they're going to lose money on it because it's a female spire. It's a black lead kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's it's two, just about being able to bite the bullet. Yeah, I mean, I think there's two fundamental issues here personally, and uh, not to go too far off track. So, there's some other things you want to talk about, but the two, well, one we mentioned, which well, is I think good. there's a lot of studio executives who are they're terrified of the new thing until the new thing is the biggest thing ever and then they want to jump on a bandwagon and yeah. getting someone to take a chance on somebody or something new is really hard because if you if, if the only films that are getting made that are big that are marvel there's already a you know a, a problem that the vast majority of marvel heroes are, are white and there's a couple of, of black ones and, and that one of them's only been done on telly um and if that's the only thing that that the executives will sign off on you've got a problem so the, re- the, re- the real thing that we need those executives to do is to give someone else a chance. So well, if someone's got a new story, try and make it. Because films are really expensive to make mm-hmm. and, and hard to get signed off and hard to get approval for, we need to find a way to make you know it, it more accessible for people to actually make the films. And it's possible that someone like Tyler Perry could make a big difference to that because he now owns a massive film studio. Um, the, 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 yeah. actual, the actual studio production facility that he's got is it's bigger than I think one or two of the, the, the traditional uh, studio facilities in, in uh, over in California. And he is, right. he's, his, his stuff has been used for everything. Like the, that Neil Armstrong film that they did with Ryan Gosling did some filming there, but also oh. you would expect, you would expect that Tyler Perry would be um, certainly put it this way. You don't want him to practice affirmative action and only, you know, have black people making films in his studio. On the other hand, if someone knocked on his door and said, I've got this really interesting script about a black main character, and there's this director here who did a couple of really good um, um, films, you know, and, and they're a person of colour, um, this sounds really good, do you want to do it? You'd expect Tyler Perry to not be one of the people who's going, oh, I'm not sure how that'll play in the Deep South. Do you know what I mean? He'll go, well, if it's good, yeah. I'll make it. You just, and and that, can only, that can only help. And you, there are signs that there is more diversity. So part of it is trying to open that out and trying to find a way for films to be more accessible. I mean, we have Netflix, we have streaming. If, if there was a way for someone to get some money to make a film and get it out more often, the people, you know, if, if more people have the opportunity to make a film, these people are going to rise to the top because talent will rise to the top. 
the other the, the other problem to that and i have a you know i don't have the same experience as black people i wouldn't claim to for a second but i think it's interesting that one of the challenges of um of of the entertainment industry is about how people from working class or social you know socioeconomically deprived backgrounds are always going to be always find it harder and because people of color are often overrepresented in poor areas and working class areas they're overrepresented among the groups of people who aren't getting a shot in all sorts of industries and the arts is definitely like that because who can afford to send the kid to drama school who can afford for their kid to go on an unpaid internship making a coffee for two years at a film company before they get a chance to actually work there everyone else has got to go yeah. and do a job you know by do um go and work in a shop or or or, or or do something else for a living because they've got bills to pay and opening that up would be would be a big thing and the, I, I think you could do this for everyone and not be accused of um of, of favoritism or political correctness because there's lots of working class people in the same boat. I mean, do you know how many people from my hometown, Sunderland, have won an Oscar in history? I mean, we mentioned this in a previous podcast, but it, it's Is one, there any? One, Is it one. one guy from Sunderland won an Oscar. It was for Shakespeare in Love as well, for fuck's sake. Oh, fuck's sake. So, you know, I've really got to bite my <laughs> tongue on that one because if, if, you know, I'd, I'd be taking my own hometown out of the equation if, if we changed history so that that film didn't win anything. And, it's all very well saying I'll I'll hire anyone to be the director of photography on my next film when there's whole sections of the population that got more chance of flapping their wings and flying to the moon than getting a chance to be qualified in that job in the first place. And in America and in Britain, they always say that the arts and the media and film and television are really important exports, especially in Britain. You know, they talk about all the things that Britain's given the world and what, what we're good at. You know, these kind of Britain's quite good type, you know, promotional films that we do. The arts is always right near the top. Shakespeare, theatre, film, books and everything else. It's a valuable yeah. export. If it's, and if it's that important, and it's certainly important to America, you think about America's popularity and influence in the world. If they've listened to American music or watched American films and all that thing, they probably quite like a lot of things about America. They certainly don't like them for their foreign policy because no one likes anyone for their foreign policy. It's really important. That cultural influence is really important. So why don't governments invest in that and say, you know what, everyone from everywhere should have a chance. This is actually an industry worth supporting because it's one of the things that we export and make money on. And if you did that, right, someone from a tough background is going to get a shot. You will suddenly find more minorities and white working class people getting a shot in these industries just by someone supporting it a bit more and not saying this is the plaything of people who are related to Edward Fox and can afford to go to RADA. So, yeah, we've talked about, you know, we've talked about Spike and, and, and Quentin and how that, uh, and how that, um, panned out and we've talked about how we'd all like to see a bit more diversity in film mainly because it would make the film world the, the more diversity is the more interesting it is right the more you know the more opportunities to explore different worlds um but obviously we, we briefly mentioned it that what happens in film is usually a reflection in some way of what's happening in the world you can't ignore what's happening in the world right now can you yeah well i i'd just like to if you if you'll allow me i want to talk about some of the there's an article it's just called know their names uh, black people killed by police this is just by police this isn't even racial prejudice you know by the system which i want to kind of talk to touch on but obviously george floyd um, and yeah. you know what he was accused of doing it was a it was a it was either a bad check or a fake 20 dollar bill he was allegedly tried to use a counterfeit 20 dollar bill as a result he was handcuffed on the ground and officer derek chauvin knelt on his neck for eight minutes and 40 seconds despite him re repeatedly saying i can't breathe he then kept his knee on his neck even when he was unresponsive um 
the two autopsy reports listed Floyd's death as homicide, although they gave different causes. And the action taken was all four officers were um, were fired. And Chauvin faces the charges of second-degree murder, and the other officers are charged with aiding and abetting second-degree murder and manslaughter. The point is, that should never have happened. Um, yeah, I mean, by all accounts, terrible. he was he was high or drunk and was a bit obstreperous when they arrested him. But again, you would expect the police to be trained in non-lethal ways to handle that. Yeah, that doesn't matter. Like every night out I've been out in, you know, I've been out on, there's heaps of drunk people that get dealt with by the police and they get dealt with appropriately and they get either taken home or they get sent on their way and they don't get killed. Then there's Brianna Taylor. So th- this one, she was, she was 26 years old and what she was doing, she was asleep at home. Um, how she was killed, Taylor and her boyfriend, Kenneth Walker, were sleeping when three plainclothes officers at, arrived at their apartment to execute a search warrant uh, in a drug case. They believed it was a break-in, and Walker called 911 and fired his li- licensed firearm. Taylor, who was unarmed, was shot eight times. The and wasn't, officer- that because, wasn't that because her ex-boyfriend had been arrested for something? It was someone she I, wasn't even with anymore. My, 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 my memory of that case was that she'd been going out with a guy she was a nurse. She was like a person who does a you know respectable job. Yeah, in she the was world. A, I think she was a medic, a paramedic, or something like that. But yeah, yeah she was, and and she she was going out with a guy. He was a deadbeat. She dumped him, and this is some time later. She's with someone different. She's left that guy mm-hmm. behind because he's a prick. But because they've arrested him, they basically called up all his, you know, known associates and raided a house armed in the middle of the night. Well, so they you believe would, you would have thought. You would have thought. Yeah. Madness. They believed it was a break-in and a boyfriend fired his licensed firearm and then I don't know what happened to Kenneth Walker, whether he was killed and they've shot him because he had a licensed firearm. But Taylor, who was unarmed, was shot eight times. Eight Didn't they, times. They, yeah, they, I mean, yeah, they seem to like empty every fucking clip that they've got whenever disgusting. they're dealing with a situation like this. It's fucking and then madness. The officers involved in the incident were reassigned pending the results of investigations. So they weren't arrested. They were just reassigned. They were just sent to another precinct. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got Tatiana Jefferson, I'm sorry, it was, took me a while to try, I don't even know if I'm saying it right, but yeah. she was at home and she was killed by a police officer who shot through the Je- shot Jefferson through the window of her home in the presence of her eight-year-old nephew. The police responded to a call from a neighbour who reported that Jefferson left the front door open. The, door, the front door's been left open, so they shot at her through the window with her nephew present. Stephon Clark, 22, standing in his grandmother's backyard. Officers said they believed Clark was holding a gun and they shot him more than 20 times. He was holding a mobile phone. Uh, Botham Jean, what he was doing, he was sat at home on his sofa eating ice cream. Jean was shot by an off-duty police officer, Amber Geiger, after she entered his apartment, believing, she said, that it was her apartment and that he was a dangerous intruder. So she went to the wrong flat and shot the guy. Philando Castile, pulled over at a traffic stop. Yeah, this is the one, I think this was the one I was talking about. Pulled up, police dash cam video of a traffic stop shows a police officer shooting Castile seconds after he informed that he had a legal firearm. So it's a different one. Castile's girlfriend, Diamond Reynolds, who was in the car along with her four-year-old daughter, captured the aftermath on Facebook Live. The officer was acquitted of second-degree manslaughter, and the city, the city agreed to a $3 million settlement with Castile's mother. There's heaps of stories like this. Alton Storing, selling CDs and DVDs. You know, he didn't have a gun on him. It's This list goes on and on and on and on and on and on. I certainly have to acknowledge the fact that I have some privilege. I've I've been lucky, you know. While I come from a working class city, I've benefited from a, a degree of social mobility that other people didn't get at the mm-hmm. time. Um, I'm a you know I'm a I'm a white man who most people would class as, as as middle class, and, I, and I'm quite lucky as a result of that. So I have to acknowledge that I have some privilege. Um, 
but when you talk about the question of white privilege, I do think it's a fair point that has been made to me that it's interesting to see people refer to someone who's grown up in a mining village in the northeast of England that hasn't seen a new job created in 35 years and call them privileged. Um, but I think that and the whole all lives matter and all, a lot of these counter arguments, it's a function of the good old fashioned divide and conquer. Because what this really is about is that while we have a system that thinks it's okay for some people to get totally fucking shafted while other people have more than they will ever need, you will always have a problem. And it's always very interesting that they argue or try and create arguments between less well-off white people and um, black people instead of those white people and, and, uh, and people of, of, of colour um, seeing that they're actually on the same side of that argument. Do you see yeah, what I mean? That's, that's, yeah, I see the point you're coming from. Is you, I think you're trying to say that you know people that who are of a white background, say in the northeast of England, who f- are being told they have white privilege when literally they've seen you know the conservatives tear that part of the world to pieces. And it's you, are you trying to say like it's a bit rich? Oh no, they're probably going to find it a bit rich for people to say they have white privilege when you know they're struggling just as much as say a black person is. Because we, yeah, we you I, know, yeah, I would, I would say so. I mean, the thing is, this is why when I talked about. Um, you know, diversity in Hollywood. I mean, there are black people and white people who are in exactly the same boat, yeah? And the um, they, be, they they're living in an area that doesn't invest enough in schools. They live in an area that is seen as being fucking scum. And some people are seen as scum because they are, you know, seen as working class and chavs or, or neds, as they say in Scotland. And some people are seen as scum because they're, they're, they're black and urban. And they're actually in the same boat. So it's a bit unfair to refer to all white people as being privileged. And the fact that more black people are, you know, proportion, as a proportion of, the, of their, their overall population are in that position compared to white people is a fair point. But the, the group of, one group of people that you shouldn't be penalising for that are the white people who have also been left behind by our yeah, society. No, it's, if it's, you a, what I mean. it's, a, it's a fair point to me. And I think that should be followed up with the point that we're all fighting against the same evil which is you know western governments you know, yeah, they yeah. Are, greed greed they are, inequality and exploitation yeah they are the ones that are perpetuating the idea of you know the poor get it, poor and the rich it, get rich it, yeah it's the old parable that, that there's a, a a rich a rich person a, a working class white person and and a, a black immigrant sitting around a table and a a cake on a plate arrives at the table and the rich man takes cuts it into 10 slices, takes nine slices for himself, turns to the white working class guy and says that immigrants trying to take your slice of the cake. Yeah. No, I, yeah. Completely agree. And basically the point is they're trying to peddle that idea of having that resentment towards the people that have nothing um, yeah. to turn their resentment away from the people that have everything. Um, yeah. If you, and if look, the, they'll, hope, they'll hopefully come a point that, you know, Look, there is a political element to the Black Lives Matter. There's a political element to everything, but the grievance that people have is real, and the problems that that people are highlighting are real. And you know, my optimistic heart says, let's hope that at some point, all the people who are being treated unfairly look at each other and go, "We're, we're not fucking standing for this anymore." Yeah, it's you, a me, systematic them, change. You, me, them. We are the ones who should. You know, we're the ones who do all the work. Um, I'm. You know, I'm not your enemy. You know, you know, we can all be positive and say you don't have to treat you know, pe- you know, the the the, the rich as the enemy either. But you say you're, I'm not your enemy. I'm going to go and take what's mine, and where where we together are going to take our share is what we hope comes out of this. So I think we've I think we've given that a decent stretch there, mate. Yeah, we've tied it in quite nicely. You know, 
that's all from the Adamsons for this month. Hope you enjoyed it. A full uninterrupted version of the interview will be made available as a bonus episode soon. It was a very long discussion in total, so the full version will give you a lot of additional context, areas of discussion, and hopefully food for thought. Please feel free to contribute your own views on this subject via the usual routes. Now back to the rest of the Nerdy Podcast magazine. And now for the hidden gem feature in which I draw your attention to a film that is not as well known or as appreciated as it deserves to be. Often these films failed at the box office or have been forgotten since they were released and I try to bring them back to the attention of the double reel audience. Hopefully this will make you think about watching it yourself and I also like to explore what might have happened if the film had been more successful and made things different for the people who made it. The entries in this feature have been quite varied from genres as different as science fiction political thrillers, historical dramas and horror. All they have in common is being less celebrated than they ought to be. This month's entry is a film by an Oscar-winning director made in the 1990s whose disturbing vision of the near future gets more and more accurate as the 21st century goes on. At the time it was a failure but it deserves to be seen again. This month's hidden gem is Catherine Bigelow's Strange Days. Strange Days was released in 1995 and was director Catherine Bigelow's follow-up to the huge hit she had with Point Break. It's sort of science fiction because it's set a few years in the future and deals with the impact of new technology, but it's principally an urban thriller with film noir elements. Set on the eve of the new millennium, the story revolves around central character Lenny Nero, played by Rafe Fiennes. He's a former LAPD cop who now works as a hustler in the Los Angeles black market. He makes his money selling a product called Squid, which involves making illegal recordings directly from people's cerebral cortex, which he then sells to people looking for the latest high. The recordings allow the user to see and feel exactly what the person saw and felt during the recording, in a kind of extreme version of virtual reality. Typically, experiences involving sex and criminal behaviour are what sell best to people trying to escape reality with some vicarious thrills. As well as the various ethical concerns that come with this technology, the film also introduces the idea that too much exposure to this footage could fry your brain or even kill you. At the start of the film it is made clear that Lenny doesn't deal in the darkest snuff film versions of these recordings, such as murder, suicide and rape, but that there are people out there selling that kind of thing, and people buying it. The film also introduces Lenny's best friends, a private investigator called Max, whose work tends to be as sleazy as Lenny's, and Mace. Mace has known Lenny since he was a cop who was friendly and helpful when she was a struggling single mother. Now she is the film's main badass, a bodyguard and limousine driver, which is basically the same thing in this violent version of LA. She's played by Angela Bassett in another great performance not long after her, perhaps career best, in the Tina Turner film. She has unrequited romantic feelings for Lenny despite her disapproval of what he now does for a living. The reason Lenny doesn't return her feelings is that he's still hung up on his ex, Faith, played by Juliette Lewis. She's a singer in the city's trendiest and edgiest nightclubs while she's waiting for her recording career to take off. Everyone but him can see that he should forget Faith and notice Mace, but he's completely blinkered. Lenny's obsession with Faith extends to using squid recordings to relive his relationship with her, including recordings of them having sex. From what we can see, she consented to the recordings, but it asks questions of whether she would still be happy with him keeping and accessing those recordings now they're no longer together. This scenario is the start point for a complicated and violent plot revolving around squid footage. Los Angeles is a hotbed of crime and unrest. 
The latest incident which threatens to spark all out chaos in the streets is a police traffic stop in which officers shoot and kill a black rapper who had been a high profile activist against police brutality. At the same time, a sex worker called Iris, who knows Lenny, slips a squid recording into his car before fleeing for her life. She is later found brutally murdered. Lenny doesn't get the recording straight away as his car has been towed, but we assume the recording involves something she witnessed and she has been murdered by people who are trying to cover their tracks. You might think from that description that this film is like a Black Mirror type scenario given the full Catherine Bigelow all-action treatment, and you'd be right. This was Catherine Bigelow at full throttle, the last film she did in this all-action style before she moved on to similarly intense but more fact-based dramas like The Hurt Locker and Zero Dark Thirty. It's an absolutely full-on, very violent, very explicit, almost over-the-top film. Catherine Bigelow, of course, had made her name with films that took the action and thriller genres to new heights, or new extremes, as some would say. She's one of the few women directors to have broken into the ranks of top-level directors and auteurs. Her first feature film was the little-seen indie biker film The Loveless in 1981, and she's only directed a total of ten films in almost four decades of her career. She first came to prominence with the violent vampire thriller Near Dark, which wasn't a hit but has a significant cult following, something you could say about several of her films. Then came Point Break, an action classic and the biggest hit of that early part of her career, with iconic action scenes and even more iconic star chemistry between Keanu Reeves and Patrick Swayze. I mentioned this film of course last time while I was having my say about the terrible 2015 remake. Strange Days was the next film she directed. Bigelow was naturally hoping to capitalise on the success of Point Break, and she really went for it. She was backed by James Cameron as producer of the film and with the biggest budget she'd ever had to work with at that point, $42 million, which was comparable to big films of that year like Outbreak and Seven, but below the really big budgets of things like Batman Forever and Die Hard 3. The original story for Strange Days came from James Cameron, who was married to Bigelow for a time, even though they'd divorced by the time this film was made, they still had a working relationship. Cameron co-wrote the screenplay, incorporating recent events that had made a big impression, such as Rodney King and the LA riots. It also seems to have been influenced by the 1994 film Natural Born Killers, about mass murderers becoming media stars. The brainchild of Quentin Tarantino and directed by Oliver Stone, both of whom are no strangers to controversy themselves, Natural Born Killers caused a huge storm when it came out. Strange Days picks up where that film left off and explored the links between media, technology and violence in a way that caused a similar amount of controversy. What you get is pretty much total sensory overload from beginning to end. It's shot almost completely at night, following sketchy people through the violent setting of LA's underworld and nightclub scene, and features every disreputable character you can think of. When it isn't portraying sex, violence and profanity, it's blasting out music and flashing enough strobe lights to justify a photosensitivity warning for viewers. While it's set in what was then the near future, the look of it is very 1990s indeed, and a number of characters have that classic decades, greasy long hairstyle that fell out of fashion very quickly because it's so vile. And if you want to generate a supercharged, sleazy atmosphere, who better to cast in various roles than Juliette Lewis, Tom Sizemore, Michael Winkert, and Richard Edson? The name Richard Edson may not be familiar, but Google him, look at a photo, and your reaction will be, oh right, that guy. It's also full of the kind of thrilling, visceral action you expect from Catherine Bigelow, right from the opening scene, a five-minute sequence showing the armed robbery of a Chinese restaurant, entirely from the point of view of the robber. As you can probably tell, I really love this film. I think it's one of the best of the 90s. 
It's a genuinely ambitious and thought-provoking film, as well as an exciting thriller. Sadly, it failed at the box office, and the critical response was extremely divided. People either loved it or absolutely hated it. One of its problems was the violence and explicit sex was too much for some people. In particular, there was a scene in which a woman is raped and murdered, and this brutal crime is turned into a squid recording for others to see and feel from the point of view of the attacker. Bigelow's justification for this and other scenes in the film was that she didn't want to pull her punches and underplay how horrible these crimes are, and she is portraying violence and voyeurism, not endorsing it. But many felt that Strange Days crossed the line into sadistic exploitation. It also had the problem that people seeing James Cameron's name on the film as producer, and to an extent Catherine Bigelow as director after Point Break, were expecting more of a straightforward action thrill ride, rather than a film that was exciting, sure, but more dark, disturbing and complex than they must have been expecting. When you read up on why it failed, you find a depressingly familiar account of a studio that didn't know what to do with the film, and didn't really support it in terms of marketing and release. And when I say it failed, it really failed. Its North America box office revenue was just $8 million against its $42 million budget, the kind of terrible figures that mean it wasn't exactly pushed into cinemas in other markets either. Which is, of course, a terrible shame, although a pretty common outcome in the 1990s. So many of the best films of that decade, such as True Romance, Dark City and Fight Club, didn't get the success they deserved at the time, especially if they weren't safe and middle-brow enough. That's not to say Strange Days is perfect. It's a little over-ambitious, introducing so many ideas and plot threads that it can't quite resolve all of them by the end of the film. It feels like it's throwing everybody and everything, including the kitchen sink at you, to try and deliver the violent thrills that are meant in the story. The look and style of the 90s hasn't aged well, and there's a particularly cheesy example of how Hollywood in that era tried and failed to portray black rappers and hip-hop. A lot of the technical details, such as the big virtual reality headsets, haven't really come true in the future, although that's understandable in the sense that the internet and handheld technology was still a distant dream back then. But it's still an absolutely arse-kicking film, one of the best examples of cyberpunk that's ever been put on screen, and really very powerful. And a lot of what it portrayed that was criticised for being over the top back then seems pretty accurate today, and gets more and more true the longer the 21st century goes on. Uh, virtual reality, police brutality, unrest in the streets, video recordings going viral, although they didn't have that phrase back then, the increasing prevalence of technology in day-to-day -day life and society, wrestling with those changes and how people interact with each other now. All very relevant, I would say. The 1995 audience might have been fascinated to see the true 2020 future when, 25 years later, everyone has a device in their pocket for video recording and live broadcast not to mention virtual reality technology being quite available, and when streets across America at the moment can look something like the riot scenes in this film. It's also a brilliant technical achievement, especially its pioneering use of point-of-view camera shots. Catherine Bigelow really puts you in the middle of her vision of violent near-future Los Angeles and roughs you up, the nearest perhaps to putting on one of Lenny's squid headsets and making you feel as if it's happening. Its reputation has been restored and improved over time, while it remains controversial, and some people will never be comfortable with the level of sex and violence in this film. And even though it resolves its own story with a big action climax and a, a party as the year 2000 arrives, the way movies tend to do, it does leave you asking questions about what's coming down the road, what technology is going to do, and where society is going to end up. Strangely, it's perhaps more relevant now than it was 25 years ago. 
as well as its unique vision of the world which deserves to be seen. It's in many ways the successor to filmmakers like Brian De Palma and films he made such as Body Double, Dress to Kill and Blowout, which I've discussed before on the podcast. Fair enough, object to a film portraying explicit scenes of sex, violence and especially sexual violence for entertainment, but ask yourself why you, the audience, are so keen to watch films containing all of that and whether we are complicit in what we watch. It didn't help Catherine Bigelow at the time, of course, and while she remains one of the most highly regarded directors in the business, it was a long way back for her after this failure. Her next film, The Weight of Water, was unsuccessful, and this is all, all conjecture on my part, but it feels a bit like she went off and tried something completely different in reaction to the failure of Strange Days and the knockback to her personally that that represented. It wasn't as well backed uh, as it could have been and its release was delayed for two years and it more or less disappeared. Her next film was K-19 The Widowmaker. Now that wasn't a hit either, despite in my opinion being a really solid film. But there were some strange objections from the critics, such as it not being critical enough of the Soviet Union. Bigelow's style of just laying out the facts of these stories without moralising finally found its feet with 2009's The Hurt Locker. But that's 14 years after Strange Days, before she was truly back where she belongs. And so this qualifies as a hidden gem because firstly, I am sure not enough of this podcast audience has seen this film and you should all do so as soon as you finish listening. And secondly, because there should be a parallel universe in which this was a hit and seen and discussed by a much wider audience. I can't ask critics who objected to the violence and intensity of the film to change what they said, but I suspect a bigger audience and conversation around this film could have given more context to those objections. A bigger hit for Catherine Bigelow would certainly have given her more backing and clout for some unrealised projects she was trying to make which never saw the light of day in the long years between Strange Days and The Hurt Locker. Her version of the Joan of Arc story was hijacked by Luc Besson in the late 90s, an outcome which could and should have been different for a start. And all it would have taken was a studio that properly supported and released the film, and for some of the audiences who flocked to see Batman Forever, Ace Ventura 2, While You Were Sleeping, Dangerous Minds and Congo to come to their senses and go watch a better movie. It is, of course, too late in this reality to change what happened to this film in the past. All you and I can do to put that right is to watch the film and spread the word. Something I urge you to do right away. Now for the most in-depth and nerdy feature of the podcast, the one that got away. Here I explore films that various filmmakers have tried to bring to the screen but failed for various reasons, and the intriguing possibilities of what might have been if they had actually succeeded. There's a lot of different stories over the years of famously unmade films, and I have a special fascination about them. I've got several books on my shelf about the subject, and a fairly long list of unmade films that I'd like to discuss on this podcast. Each month when it comes time to select one to do for the new episode, the choice depends on a few different things. Which of the list of unrealised projects is really capturing my imagination at that point? Is there enough available information for me to read up on and discuss it properly? Often the films and topics from previous episodes of the podcast tend to point me in the direction of certain films next time around. This time I'm discussing something that kind of jumped out at me when I was looking at my lists, from one of my favourite directors, and once I got into it I realised it was quite topical to the present time. This month's One That Got Away is Akira Kurosawa's Mask of the Black Death. Kurosawa worked on the idea for this film for over 20 years, but it was delayed several times and remained unrealised at the time of his death in 1998. 
It is fair to say, of course, that even with the films he did make in his long career, Akira Kurosawa is already a legend of cinema, and especially Japanese film. A good example of the high regard in which he is held, Stanley Kubrick listed five films he would want to be able to watch again and again if marooned on a desert island, and three of them were Kurosawa films. Born in a suburb of Tokyo in 1910, he found success in the post-war Japanese film industry with several contemporary films, the best of which are Stray Dog and Drunken Angel. From there, Kurosawa began making the films for which he is now most famous and which brought him international attention. 1950s Rashomon is set in the feudal samurai era and shows the same incident from multiple points of view as different witnesses testify in a criminal trial. 1954 brought the masterful Seven Samurai, which directly inspired the Magnificent Seven and indirectly influenced every action film that has ever been made since. Then there was Throne of Blood with Mifune again, this time as the samurai version of Macbeth. Hidden Fortress later that decade provided the template for George Lucas and Star Wars, with battles and drama observed by two bumbling servants that Lucas repurposed into bickering robots, and the famous screen wipe used to cut between scenes that Lucas borrowed extensively in his sci-fi saga. His other most famous film from that era is Yojimbo, another masterpiece featuring Toshiro Mifune again as a wandering ronin who comes to a town in the grip of a conflict between two crime lords and plays both sides off against each other. That will sound familiar because it's where Sergio Leone got the idea for a fistful of dollars. That hugely successful era of the 50s and 60s cemented his reputation as a singular talent and for bringing Japanese films and especially samurai films to a Western audience. The irony of his films being the ones that woke the world up to Japanese cinema is that he was influenced by Western film and art a great deal, inspired by John Ford Westerns and uh, adapting several European writers for his films such as Gorky and Dostoevsky. He even based some of his films on classic American crime writers like Hammett and Ed McBain. This partly caused his career to become a bit patchy after that. There were rumblings of discontent that he wasn't Japanese enough and pandered to the West, as well as the time and cost that he needed to get his films made, which started to make it difficult for him to get funding. In the mid-60s, he fell out with Mifune and they never worked together again. After several failures, he attempted suicide in 1971, and after he recovered, he went abroad and made a film in Soviet Russia. There he met and befriended the great Russian director Andrei Tarkovsky, a filmmaker whose ambivalent relationship with his own country had parallels to that of Kurosawa. There's a great story of Tarkovsky showing Kurosawa his new film Solaris, which he loved, then the two men getting absolutely hammered together on Russian vodka and singing the samurai song together from the Seven Samurai film Long Into the Night. The gaps between Kurosawa's films became longer, and in his later career he made two more classics which stand amongst his best films, and among the best films of all time. Kagemusha, or Shadow Warrior, about a thief who is employed as a samurai lord's double and has to take over from him after the real lord is killed, and Ran, a samurai reworking of Shakespeare's King Lear. It was during this latter part of his career that he was trying to make The Mask of the Black Death. He started working on the idea in the late 70s after he completed Derzu Uzala, the film he made in the Soviet Union. And over the next 20 years, even as he was working on other projects, he tried to bring this new story to the screen. The story itself is an adaptation of Edgar Allan Poe's The Mask of the Red Death. Kurosawa changed red to black to make a more obvious link to the bubonic plague, I think. Edgar Allan Poe is a hugely influential writer of the 19th century. And if you're not directly familiar with his work, you will most likely have seen a film or TV show adapted from his work, or at least influenced by it, and read books by people who were heavily influenced by him. He wrote in a range of genres and published many articles of various types while working at a newspaper, but is best known for mystery and horror stories. 
His story Murders in the Rue Morgue is credited with inventing the detective story and the idea of deductive reasoning that directly influenced Conan Doyle's Sherlock Holmes. One of the main international awards for mystery and crime writing, the Edgar Award, is named after him. But most of his best-known work is in the 19th century gothic horror genre, which sits somewhere between horror as we know it and psychological thrillers. Mostly in the form of poems and short stories, he wrote only a couple of full-length novels, his prolific imagination spawned countless macabre ideas and images that have informed everything anyone has done since in those styles of film or, or literature. He popularised the idea of the raven as a kind of harbinger of doom and tragedy, the telltale heart in which someone is murdered and bricked up in the walls, but the killer can still hear the victim's heart beating, and the pit and the pendulum which set the template for many modern horror stories. As if to add to his gothic reputation, he died aged 40 after running delirious through the streets and ranting in terror, and the cause of his death remains a mystery to this day. The Mask of the Red Death, as he wrote it uh, originally, is a tiny short story, barely eight pages in the anthology I've got. You may remember in this feature, for a previous episode, I discussed how Total Recall is based on a 20-page short story that left a lot of work for anyone trying to adapt it into a film. Well, this one left filmmakers inspired by the story even more to do. Not only is it very short, it's very self-contained. A mysterious plague has swept the land, and the leader of the country, Prince Prospero, has locked his castle and all his courtiers and lords inside it, trying to shut out the disease. Inside, they are in denial of the horrors outside their walls, and a huge decadent masked ball is in progress throughout the castle, in a series of strangely decorated rooms. Each hour the clock strikes and terrifies the revellers, but they press on manically, trying to ignore the inevitable march of time. In the end, a strange masked red figure done up like a plague victim sweeps through the ball and is confronted by the prince, only for his robes to fall back to reveal no one inside. It is then that they realise that the disease is inside the castle and will kill everyone, with the final line in the story, and darkness and decay and the red death held illimitable dominion over all. The story has a chilling dreamlike quality which makes use of colour and a poetic tone, and it kind of sticks in your mind like a tune you can't stop hearing. It has a number of possible interpretations of the inevitability of death, for example, but is likely to have been heavily influenced by the prevalence of disease in the 19th century. Uh, Poe himself was witness to a, a terrible outbreak of cholera in Baltimore where he lived in the 1830s, and his wife was suffering from tuberculosis at the time he was writing the story, eventually dying of that disease. The influence of Poe's story has been seen countless times on the big screen. Just think back to anything you've ever watched where a masked ball was the backdrop for any form of intrigue, mystery, or especially fantastical horror. It's been directly adapted for the screen a couple of times by B-movie legend Roger Corman. The most successful version he did was in 1964, where Vincent Price played the prince as a Satanist whose castle was full of evil rituals and orgies. Because the story is so short and kind of non-literal, there's a lot of scope for a new adaptation to take it in a variety of directions, so obviously Kurosawa had something very different in mind. Sadly, Kurosawa never managed to complete the film. As I mentioned, he was starting to find it difficult to make his films by this time. In the late 70s, Star Wars hit it big, borrowing from classic Kurosawa, and with his newfound success, George Lucas reached out to the old Japanese master. He was shocked to find out that despite his great track record, Kurosawa was unable to get funding for his films. Lucas and his contemporaries in America revered him and were determined to change that. Lucas used his immense newfound influence in Hollywood to persuade Fox to make Kurosawa's next film, which was Kagemusha, in 1980. Lucas and fellow fan Francis Coppola were credited as producers. The success of that film led to Ran, his final samurai masterpiece, but by this time Kurosawa was in his 70s 
and it took years of meticulous obsessive work to make films his way. A few more films followed, each interesting in their own way, but he didn't quite have the post story where he wanted it, and his health was failing him. In his final years, now in his 80s, he continued working on it, considering whether to find another director to make the film for him. But eventually time ran out, and Akira Kurosawa died in 1998 with the project still unrealised. There's a copy of the script in an online archive maintained by students and scholars of Kurosawa. Apart from that, a lot of the online articles and so on focus on news that a Chinese film company is looking to revive that script and make the film with a new director. So in terms of asking my usual question of what this film would look like if it got made, my reference points are that script and Kurosawa's other films to get an idea of subject and style. The script itself is a hand-typed manuscript that someone has scanned in and uploaded to the archive. You can read it using a viewer on the website, which is a bit clunky, but I haven't found a way to download it into a PDF file to print or read in an easier format. Still, you can get a pretty good idea of the planned film and of Kurosawa's writing style. It starts with a disclaimer Kurosawa wrote that this is not so much a first draft of the script and more of a screen story or scenario which expands on the source material and presents ideas for how he would tell the story. Having said that, it still runs to over 120 pages with names, characters, scenes, directions and dialogue, and it goes a long way to looking like a script for a film. From this script, it seems he was going to set the story in Europe, possibly in Russia by some accounts, although the characters in this script have English names. That could be something to do with the translator who did the work. What is very clear, though, is that Kurosawa had some very vivid scenes and ideas in mind. It opens with a regiment of cavalry who have been trying to clean up the countryside on behalf of their duke, burying the dead and burning infected towns and villages. They carry a sealed letter from the duke, which they think is an instruction for the king's forces to give them refuge outside the infected area. But when they present it at a checkpoint, the letter is actually blank. They struggle back through plague country to their duke's castle and are refused entry. The gates have been welded shut and they've been betrayed. Instead, they wander through the cursed country and are slowly wiped out by the Black Death. Inside the Duke's castle, it is much like the original story. A masked ball is being organised in a series of strange rooms that combine garish colours with a kind of horrible decadence. Tensions threaten to boil over. Abbots, bishops and other representatives of the church are horrified by what they see in the castle, by the abandonment of the people outside, and they argue amongst themselves over whether to carry on quietly tolerating it or risk their lives by speaking out against the Duke. The troops and guards in the castle are on the brink of mutiny, having heard what happened to the men who were sent out into the countryside and betrayed. The Duke refuses to let people even look over the castle parapet at the horrors outside, or say the name of the Black Death that has them confined. His wife and her ladies-in-waiting defy him, but she is ill, with rumours rife that she has the plague. The Duke threatens hanging or shooting to anyone who defies him. There is endless revelry and excess in the castle, and an enormous masked ball, including a ballet performance, eventually starts to, uh, to unfold, even though there may only be about two weeks of food left. Meantime, the Duke's brother John is plotting to overthrow him. Some believe the plague, if they are brave enough to talk about it at all, is God's punishment for wickedness. But the Duke, dark and cynical, says, if there were any divine judgment to this plague, why are the relatively innocent common people outside the worst hit? while the nobility and rulers, responsible for all the wars and poverty, are relatively safe inside the castle. Other characters have various intrigues and agendas, and it adds to the strangeness and atmosphere that there is a kind of court jester commenting on the scene, as you might have in a medieval court. Scene after scene shows the various coloured rooms which have to be walked through to get to the Duke. The clock striking a terrifying discordant note on the hour 
reminds those who know that their time and food is running out. The dance rehearsals for the ball are frequently portrayed as part of the build-up, and it seems to be some kind of depraved sexual or bestial theme. John overthrows his brother the Duke and locks him up when words get out of the Duchess's illness, claiming he has covered up the fact that there is a case of the plague inside the castle. Then John realises she doesn't have the plague, um, and to cover up his tracks he has her chambers burned down with her inside and kills the physician who knew about it to prevent the Duke wresting power back from him. Even with the new Duke, the masked ball goes ahead, and the ballet is every bit as horrible as rehearsed. It's like the whole castle has gone mad. Those loyal to the old Duke get word to him and he breaks free, and an armed confrontation could occur at any moment. With this as the backdrop, a mysterious masked figure appears in the midst of the dancers, looking like a plague victim, and like he's in the process of dying agonisingly of the Black Death. Then, the Mask of the Black Death, as he is referred to in the script, walks from room to room, pursued by the new Duke and his supporters, but they seem unable to grab him or keep him in their sights. Five noblemen pursue the figure into the Black Room, and moments later are found dead, their bodies strewn in front of the masked man. Panic ensues, people stampede, fires break out, everyone is desperate to get out of the castle. Since the gates are shut, people try to get over the top of the castle walls to see if they can climb down, but then they see the horrors outside that the Duke has been trying to prevent them seeing. Massive piles of bodies, disfigured by the plague, burning towns and villages, devastation as far as the eye can see. The people at the front of the stampede stop, terrified, but the crush of the people behind them forces them over the walls, falling to their death below. Those not thrown over the parapet or crushed end up in a frenzy, fighting amongst themselves, as the castle starts to burn. At the end, the old duke, walking alone through the castle, then the square, flames everywhere and scattered corpses all around. He enters the banquet hall, and the strange, terrifying clock keeps sounding as the room burns down. He walks through each of the coloured rooms, all burning down, finally reaching the purple room, where the duke sees the mask of the Black Death seated at the table. The mysterious figure removes his mask to reveal it is the court jester, laughing. The Duke says incredulously, It's you? Why aren't you running away? I've had enough, the jester replies. Me too, says the Duke, who sits down beside the clown, waiting to be burned up in the castle. The final shot is of the black room, where the huge, terrifying clock signs the final hour. Then the pendulum stops still in the flames. Even in a very rudimentary form like this, it's incredibly vivid, and it would be something to see what Kurosawa did with this. It was something he obviously wanted to do as one of his last films was just called Dreams, showing various visions that preoccupied him. This has a similar dreamlike or nightmarish quality. A few themes immediately spring to mind. The literal one of disease ravaging a medieval world and the greed and savagery of people panicking in the face of death. It has an almost apocalyptic feel to it, like the final line of the original story which seemed to suggest the death of everyone and everything. Perhaps simply it's about a duke who is about to die and the mad terrors he sees as he fights to the very end. It could even be the writer, Kurosawa himself, picturing his own death and desperately trying to make one last film, shoot one last great scene with the time he has left. In a way, it could be topical, a more drastic and horror-themed view, of course, but of the various leaders squabbling and failing to deal with the crisis in a world gripped by disease. Whatever the interpretation, I found this idea really compelling. Not least that it was a story that one of the greatest filmmakers of all time spent two decades trying to bring to life. It felt like something he was desperate to express, a warning, or even just him wanting to go out in a blaze of fury with his final statement to the world. In some ways it seems like a departure for Kurosawa though, 
While he'd filmed striking visions in his films like The Forest Army and Throne of Blood, and pretty much the entire final act of Ram, and literal dream sequences in Dreams and Kagemusha, this Poe adaptation really goes into the territory of surrealist nightmares, something that Fellini or Louis Buñuel would make. In fact, Kurosawa name-checked both of those directors when talking about this script. The closest thing I can think of from Kurosawa's other films would have been that dream sequence in Kagemusha, the shadow warrior's nightmare that the dead warlord he's impersonating bursts out of his grave and pursues him across mountains and lakes that seem to have shrunk under a blood-filled sky that seems to have been turned upside down. But that's one sequence, whereas this would have had to sustain that kind of atmosphere for a lot longer. It's also something of a departure in terms of the setting. Virtually all of Kurosawa's films were set in Japan with Japanese characters, even when he adapted stories by non-Japanese writers. The film he made in Russia was set in the far eastern part of that country that borders China and Japan. That was perhaps what made him Kurosawa. You watch Yojimbo with its samurai characters and feudal Japan setting, but it seems to share the same universe as a John Ford Weston. I find it a little bit difficult to imagine what it would have been like if he'd set this in Europe with European actors. Would it have been filmed in English? That might have been a problem he was yet to solve in his development of the film. Perhaps the biggest departure would have been how so much of it was set inside the castle, with most of the scenes essentially indoors after the sequence with the abandoned cavalry crossing the plague-ridden land was played out. In fact, the characters are forbidden to even look outside, and when they do, late in the story, it's a horrific shock. That forces the film almost completely inside the castle walls. This would be strange having got so used to Kurosawa's breathtaking exterior shots, not just his great battle scenes and chases sweeping across land, around castles and through the iconic village in Seven Samurai. Even very static scenes he did with people just standing and talking are often these beautifully composed vistas with a mountain and perfectly captured sky dominating the landscape behind them. The huge castle and the strange layout and colours of the Duke's rooms would give a good sense of scale and opportunity for Kurosawa to display his visual skills. But somehow the story as written does seem to be very internal, indoors, until the big finale. I would expect further development of the script to perhaps change the structure somewhat and allow more movement and more scope to see the outside world around the castle, even if it's in visions and dreams. Perhaps the timing of the lost cavalry regiment roaming the land looking for shelter could change. Kurosawa's films often use the recurring theme where the struggles or mood of his characters was reflected by the weather or environment around them. The cop in Stray Dog desperately chasing down the criminal who stole his pistol is under a boiling hot sun. The warlord in Ran, his army and family collapsing around him in the middle of a catalytic thunderstorm. Surely he'd have used this again as a way to mark the progress of the story, same as the clock striking its terrifying sounds every hour. All in all, it's a fascinating idea, and the possibility of another late Kurosawa masterpiece is very enticing. One reason I'd have loved to have seen this was that in an almost 50-year career, he only made seven films in colour, only switching from black and white in 1970, just as his output was becoming less frequent. Another film in his late career, with his stunning visual mastery in full colour, makes a big difference. The question is, of course, could it have been made, and if so, why didn't it? I don't want to read too much into the available script in the archive, as this could have been a very early draft and other versions he did may not have been released. The announcement by that Chinese film company that they were making the film was entirely official, assuming they had negotiated rights and everything required for the project. It's possible there is a more advanced version of this story that we haven't seen. But what if this is as far as Kurosawa got? He had health problems from the 1970s onwards, 
and had to focus very heavily on each film as he made it because of his all-consuming production approach. Perhaps he'd not been able to devote much time to it. In that last great era, he was in his 70s and 80s, and the demands of writing and directing his films were asking a lot. Perhaps he just wasn't able to take it much further than this script. The other problem could be that maybe this was as far as he got because he still hadn't cracked some problems in the story. All biographies state that while his physical health deteriorated in his final years, his mind remained as sharp as ever. If this was his last great project over his final time on this earth, he would have been able to hone and perfect a script, surely. What if it just wasn't possible to take all these striking ideas and images and ground it in a full script that worked and could be filmed the way he wanted? Was he worried, for example, that what he was working on was two hours plus of the kind of nightmarish horror scenes that were normally just a few minutes of screen time in his films? Was this all crescendo, all climatic finale, like an action film that's all shootout and death scenes without the story in between? Perhaps it's fitting, given the themes of the story, that Kurosawa didn't actually make this film, but was creating it and uh, working on this wild and strange story, but was interrupted by the event of his own death. Of course, I'd like to think in my usual parallel universe of perfect cinematic outcomes that there was a real film in there and Kurosawa could have made it. His unique vision in a gothic period setting of the challenges and dangers facing people today, his pandemic film. Maybe he could have had better luck in the 70s, made his film in Far Eastern Russia sooner, swept back to glory sooner with Kagemusha and Ran and had the time and energy to complete The Mask of the Black Death before 1990 at least. I think he would perhaps have moved away from the idea of a European setting, maybe using his tried and trusted skills at making a story from anywhere in the world work in Japan. In terms of the period setting, I guess somewhere in the feudal or samurai era, which we all love his films, with perhaps some work required on what kind of castle might exist in Japan that fits the specifics of this story. With those details ironed out, I'd love to have seen a film that portrayed that world in the grip of the crisis and the struggles and chaos of the people dealing with it, played out in that striking and dynamic Kurosawa style. Usually I discuss uh, at this point whether the film would have changed the course of its creator's career. Of course we can't see that film in this world as Kurosawa is no longer with us so it, it's difficult to say what this would have done. I think he was already a master. I think it's just about getting to see one more Kurosawa film rather than changing the course of his career. I would be interested to see the version of this they're working on in China even if it wouldn't be the same as the old master himself making it. There's been very little heard of that project, however, since it was announced in 2017. Production has obviously been delayed this year due to COVID, and the film company Hua Yi had some financial losses last year that could easily lead to projects being cancelled. But it would be nice to see that made, if nothing else, to help us imagine Kurosawa's Mask of the Black Death. Until then, we'll have to rely on his other films, such as Ran, Dreams and Kagemusha. If you're interested in the 1960s version of Mask of the Red Death with Vincent Price, it's worth watching as well and quite striking to look at, but a much more garish and camp approach to the story. Apart from that, the nearest thing to the Mask of the Black Death could come from watching the news right now on any given day. We finish as always on the crescendo of righteous indignation that is the remake Hate Watch. The endless rehashing of old stories at the expense of new ones is bad for the health of cinema and bad for the chances of new and original filmmakers to be seen and heard. In this slot I dissect some of the worst examples of these terrible remakes and call out the people responsible for besmirching the art form. 
Up to now, I've looked at some fairly standard examples of bad remakes, all from the 21st century, all shoddy, unimaginative retreads of better films, all backed with big budgets and resources from a big Hollywood production line. These are in sharp contrast to remakes that most people defend as justified for bringing a new perspective on the story and doing something interesting with the material. This month I'm looking at a slightly different example of a bad remake. This is a film from back in the late 20th century that could have ended up on that precious list of good remakes. It was intended to be a new take on material ripe for a new version by a director with a distinctive vision and style. Instead, it ended up being a complete mess whose notoriously disastrous production has entered Hollywood legend and got its own documentary. This month's remake Hate Watch looks at the infamous 1996 version of The Island of Dr. Moreau. And the main story really is not the film itself, but the disasters behind the scenes that resulted in a terrible movie. As always, here's a bit of background. The Island of Dr. Moreau was originally a novel by the great H.G. Wells, one of the pioneers of science fiction who I mentioned briefly in the last episode. He was a renowned visionary and social commentator, and many of his future predictions came true during the 20th century. He was successful and influential throughout a long and prolific career, but most of his novels which are remembered now and continually adapted today come from the early part of his career, from the mid-1890s onwards. This includes War of the Worlds, First Men on the Moon, The Time Machine, and The Invisible Man. The Island of Dr. Moreau also belongs to this period. It reflects on the dark side of the undeniably important progress of the 19th century and discusses what he saw as disturbing trends in animal and human experimentation and eugenics. In the story, a young man is shipwrecked and brought to an uncharted island where he finds the eponymous Dr. Moreau, once a respected scientist but now a pariah due to his ideas and experiments that society found unacceptable. He is retreated, disillusioned from the world, to live in his own tiny kingdom where he continues his work. Said work, horrifyingly, turns out to be attempts to splice the genes of humans and animals to create newer, supposedly better creatures. There is a cult-like atmosphere on the island where a parade of strange hybrid creatures, leopard people and such like, see Moreau as their creator and struggle to act like humans and obey the so-called laws of human society. Of course it goes horribly wrong and the irony of animals being meant to see humans as morally superior to themselves is not lost on the author or the reader. Like a lot of his work and that of Jules Verne who I discussed last month, this novel struck a chord with people at the time but also continues to resonate and fascinate people to this day. So it's no surprise that filmmakers have frequently adapted or been inspired by this novel. Several versions of The Island of Dr. Moreau were made during the silent era, usually changing the title, and there was an early sound version called Island of Lost Souls with Charles Lawton and Bella Lugosi in 1932. Wells lived to see and disapprove of these early versions of his work. Later there were several exploitation film versions of the story, some credited, some not, and a fairly faithful but not very well liked adaptation in 1977 starring Burt Lancaster and Michael York. Then in the 90s came the version that is qualified for a remake hate watch. Now firstly, I totally accept that another remake of this story is valid. The issues it raises are still relevant and society's attitudes to them are continually evolving. Our understanding of the science has moved on as what is possible in uh, terms of film special effects and what is permitted to be shown on screen to do more justice to the story than previous versions. The person who stepped in with the idea for that remake was Richard Stanley. Now this is a director whose maverick personality and wayward career has been more of a talking point than the handful of admittedly interesting films he has made in his career. He made his name with the uh, cult cyberpunk film Hardware in 1990 and the little seen but much discussed follow-up Dust Devil. 
When he was signed up to do The Island of Dr Moreau, he was still in his 20s and could not be described as an established director. His first two films had been low budget, approximately a million dollars each, and had gained attention in the film industry more for their style than their content. That was enough to get him a deal with New Line Cinema to develop the script he had written based on the Wells novel, which updated the story, setting it in the 21st century. It had been a lifelong ambition of his to make the film. The project was greenlit, and the great Marlon Brando was signed on to star as Dr Moreau. Stanley hit trouble early on in the development phase when he found that New Line was trying to replace him as director with Roman Polanski. He managed to get a meeting with Brando, who became a champion of the young director. He loved the fact that Stanley was descended from the famous explorer Sir Henry Morton Stanley, who charted much of Central Africa. Brando also saw similarities between Dr Moreau and the Kurtz character he played in Apocalypse Now. This secured Stanley as director for the time being, and Brando seemed like the saviour of the project at that time. His presence persuaded big names like Bruce Willis and James Woods to join the cast, and it all looked very hopeful. That was the last bit of good luck that Richard Stanley enjoyed, unfortunately. A catalogue of disastrous events followed, some tragic, which left the film in a mess it never recovered from. Brando suffered a very public personal tragedy just before filming was due to start when his daughter died, which delayed his involvement in the project and made it uncertain whether he would turn up at all. Bruce Willis pulled out because he was going through a very public divorce with Demi Moore. His replacement, Val Kilmer, then turned out to have divorce troubles of his own, and he demanded to switch from the leading role to a supporting role to reduce his filming time. The studio agreed to this demand, keen to keep a big star attached to the project, and got rid of James Woods. Everyone involved would live to regret that decision, as Kilmer's time on this film cemented his reputation for being difficult to work with. Brando was missing, the other actors were at each other's throats, and the rainforest filming location they were using in Australia was hit by a sustained period of horrendous weather. New leading man Rob Morrow quit just days into the shoot, and Stanley's relationship with the studio wasn't working either. Not long after, he was fired from his own film. Now in the main, I think he wasn't treated very well, but Richard Stanley was probably never going to succeed on this film. He was out of his depth, with just two films under his belt, only one of which got seen by anyone, and suddenly responsible for a $40 million budget instead of the $1 million he was used to. The big name stars coming aboard had become a mixed blessing as they increased the budget and profile of the film into something he wasn't prepared for. And he was in many ways as difficult a character as the actors who were holding up production, not communicating effectively and refusing to attend studio meetings just when they needed some reassurance. He was replaced by veteran director John Frankenheimer, who unfortunately just made things worse. His autocratic directing style put people's backs up, and he hadn't made a decent film in years, and didn't really have any kind of vision for the story. Brando, when he finally turned up, was in full-on strange mode, inventing his own costumes and headgear and not having read the script, such as it was. Val Kilmer's behaviour didn't get any better, and new leading man David Thewlis, a talented young actor at that time from British independent films, could do little but cling on as the film's production went horribly wrong. The stories of the mess on set have overshadowed the film itself and are certainly more interesting than what you see on screen. My favourite story from the project was that Richard Stanley dressed up as a dog creature and sneaked back on set as an extra, secretly communicating with some of the actors while everything was going tits up. As for the finished film, it is pretty terrible, but the main emotion watching it now is frustration at the missed opportunities rather than the usual outrage that this particular remake got made in the first place. They were most likely screwed from the start by the decisions that the studio made, undermining the director from the beginning, persisting with Brando when he was a liability on and off set despite his great acting talent, 
And obviously they had some bad luck with Bruce leaving, then Val Kilmer's private life going south. But you can't help thinking the cast would have had more balance if they'd kept James Woods in the picture. It's said that they jettisoned Stanley's script and basically made it up as they went along. And I can well believe that. The story as played out makes no sense. And none of the motivations of the characters or themes of the original story are properly explored at all. Nothing appears to have been filmed that would actually explain why a scientist was doing all this, why other characters are helping him, and who some of the characters even are. David Thewlis in interviews said that director Frankenheimer, who Thewlis hated, had no idea what he was doing and just tried to complete the shooting schedule and piece together whatever they finished up with. That may be a bit harsh because it does have quite a big, well-mounted action climax, but there's obviously something in it. And what they finished up with feels like half a story, with glimpses of what could have been a good film, but most of it missing. A lot of effort has been put into the animal effects by the legendary Stan Winston, but the rest of it is all over the place. And Brando really capped it off. His strange behaviour on set is now legend, and while it seemed to work when he was equally difficult and eccentric on earlier films like Apocalypse Now, it does not come off at all here. Dressed in a range of smocks and robes to hide how obese he was, covered head to toe in sunblock because he hated the heat, and various strange headgear, including at one point an ice bucket, really an ice bucket. It's a miracle they had any usable footage at all. He also insisted on the addition of a genetically modified miniature character to be something between Moreau's child and his pet, with whom he has a cringe-worthy piano duet. It's hard to watch without being reminded of the parodies that followed it, and which probably would have been seen by more people than have actually watched the film. In particular, the use of a version of Brando's character in South Park and the whole mini-me sequence from the Austin Powers films. So why does this belong in remake Hate Watch? Shouldn't the people involved get credit for attempting an ambitious and timely remake of a great novel that justified another version? Well, in some ways it's worse than the other shite remakes I've covered in this feature. At least everyone who made the Italian Job remake knew what they were signing up for, a soulless corporate rehash. When the island of Dr. Moreau was announced, people might have hoped for a good new take on the story, with an interesting new director, a great cast, and Stan Winston's creature effects. So there was an added level of disappointment that instead, the dysfunctional Hollywood system plumbed new depths of studio interference and mismanagement, not to mention movie star egos at their most grotesque, resulting in this monstrosity of a film. In some ways it actually is worth watching just to see what a horrific mess they made of it, and for the sheer grim effort on the face of David Thewlis as he tries to carry the story in some sort of sensible way. But we will have to wait for the definitive version of The Island of Dr Moreau, as this isn't it. In the meantime, you are better off reading the book, uh, or you could watch the documentary that told the mad story of this production, Lost Souls, The Doomed Journey of Richard Stanley's Island of Dr Moreau. If curiosity does get the better of you and you can't help watching this shambolic version, don't say you weren't warned. As we close the last feature of the podcast, I feel like this has been a bit of an apocalypse-themed episode. The big cinema release was about battling to prevent the end of the world. The classic and the hidden gem were about the breakdown and depravity of an increasingly jaded society. The one that got away is a pandemic film. And the remake was a cautionary tale about the consequences of humanity's interference with nature. I'm also conscious that sadly it's two episodes in a row where someone we've been talking about on the podcast has died shortly before the episode is released. Next month, perhaps my feature should be on Flight, Home Alone 2 and Scoob, seeing as they include appearances by Piers Morgan, Donald Trump and Simon Cowell, respectively. (laughs) 
That's all for this month's episode of Double Reel. Thanks for listening and for making it all the way to the end. Special thanks again to James Adamson for joining me for the special guest interview, the full version of which will be available soon as a bonus episode. I wrote, presented, edited and mixed a podcast using Audacity and Anchor FM. As usual, anything that sounded good was down to them and anything that sounded crap was down to me. The music was Mistake the Getaway by Kevin MacLeod. Strange Days is widely available to buy on Blu-ray, but unfortunately not streaming or digital copy in the UK, even though that's the most common way to watch or buy films nowadays. If you want to read more on Kurosawa's Unrealized Project, there are several articles online, including some very good stuff on akirakurosawa.info. I'll post a link to the archived screenplay on the Double Reel Facebook page. If you enjoyed this podcast, please like and subscribe and tell your friends. Hopefully you'll tune in next time. Until then, stay safe, watch lots of films, and may your life be as awesome as you pretend it is on social media. promised you a post-credit sequence so here it is for those lucky few who didn't think I was joking and persevered to pass the end of the credit music. I know you've only just finished listening to episode 5 of Double Reel and probably need to have a rest after consuming all that nerdy film content but hopefully I can whet your appetite for episode 6 which will be coming your way next month. Probably not the most exciting post-credit sequence has ever been. Sorry if you were expecting us to introduce a new character, or reveal that my son and I will be miniaturised for the next episode, or Samuel L. Jackson to turn up and say that our podcast is part of a wider secret initiative. I'm afraid all you're getting is a quick rundown of what you can look forward to in next month's episode. Firstly, I'm planning to take in another viewing of Christopher Nolan's Tenet and see what my future self can learn and understand about this time-bending film to add to what my past self took in the first time. The classic film I'm going to watch from my list of things I should get round to instead of Bond films on ITV4 will be the classic submarine drama Das Boot Extended Edition. The hidden gem in episode 6 will be Stir of Echoes, a supernatural thriller which came out the same time as Sixth Sense and was overlooked despite being much better. The one that got away feature will be Guillermo del Toro's At the Mountains of Madness. The remake Hate Watch will be a look at Nicolas Cage's almost indescribable new version of The Wicker Man. And in the special guest conversation, the Adamsons will be discussing Scorsese versus Marvel. Okay, that's your lot. You can go now. Don't forget to take your rubbish with you and put it in the bins in the foyer.